Well, hello everyone and welcome to Gospel Community Providence. We are a small community of Jesus followers in Providence, Rhode Island. Our goal in life is to be the family of God, redeemed and transformed by Jesus, living out God's mission in our culture. You're listening to content created specifically for our church community, and the thoughts and teachings that you'll find here come from a study of the Bible that is informed by some of the best thinkers and followers of Jesus today and throughout church history. Just a heads up, you may hear a variety of voices and distractions and noises in the background. This is because we are a church of families with real lives full of children, noise, and interruptions. We celebrate these noises, however, because they remind us that real life is not a perfectly curated moment, but is full of opportunities to worship Jesus through the messy, unflattering, and mundane. In addition to this, you may hear the voices and comments of various audience members throughout the teaching. While this often causes our time to go a little long, it also deepens and enriches our time together as we discuss what we are learning and reflect on how to live it out. So bear with us. We are not professionals, but we are imperfect people who love and serve a perfect God. Let's go. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Good morning, Zeke. I'm Zeke, and I'm going to be reading the scripture. Hey, Facebook. <laughs> Luke chapter 10, verses 17 through 24. The 72 return with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then, turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see, for I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see, and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. Thank you. Appreciate it. Um, it is really nice to see all of your masked faces this morning. Um, so not everyone here is native to New England. Uh, looking around the room, we got lots of areas represented in the room. But if you were raised in New England, which there is enough of you here that will know what I'm talking about here, this region, and even if you've lived here just for a short period of time even, you kind of get to know that this region lives and dies by its sports teams. Like, have you guys sensed that? Like, you know, when the Patriots had a really bad season for the first time in a billion years this year, that everyone on Sunday just kind of like was just like, uh, not feeling it. Like, growing up, um, I've talked with Micah about this, and I think maybe even Matt and Zeke, I don't know if you can back me up on this, but like, if the teams are doing well, 
there's like a general sense of positivity in the air, right? People are kind of buzzing, like people want to talk about it at the store, they want to like engage, people are much more chatty, like I can remember taking the train in Boston after a win and like everyone's just like buzzing or the next morning people are reading the newspapers with, oh did you see what happened last night? Um, I think this was highlighted like in 2003 and 2004, if you guys remember, the Red Sox had a couple seasons there. So in 2003, uh, the Red Sox, you know, they've gone through this drought. It was said the team was like cursed, like mm. for like years since 1918, they hadn't won a championship. And finally, they thought they were gonna make it, right? Like we're finally getting there, and they make it to the ALCS, and they're playing the Yankees, and they make it to Game Seven. Then in game seven, it goes into extra innings, the ultimate dramatic point, and they lose the series on a walk-off home run. And I can remember like the following week, maybe even month after that game, I think I was 12 years old, it was like the whole region was just depressed. Like everyone just had this grumpy look on their face and walked around sulking. Like it was so sad. But Conversely, right, the next year, 2004, same thing happens again, and people are so pessimistic. They're like, oh, okay, the team's good, but they're not going to do it. There's no chance it's going to happen. But against all odds, they, the next year, turn around and win the World Series, and you might have thought it was the year of Jubilee. Like, people were just, like, ecstatic, like, I think I was in, what, like, fifth or sixth grade at the time, and, uh, they had the, the championship parade for the Red Sox going on, and every classroom in the whole building shut off when the parade was happening, and we all turned on the TVs, and everyone unanimously just watched, and we spent the rest of the day. It was like a snow day or something. <laughs> it was amazing. Like, um, okay, so these are really silly examples, right? But I think it highlights something that's deeper that goes on in our hearts, is that we tend to like, let our joy and our happiness be dictated by our circumstances. Like, there's no surprise. When things are going well, we're generally happy. When things are going not so well, we can tend to be crushed. But the tendency here is to be on the highest high when things are going well and find our ultimate joy in that. And when it's not, like, we don't have any source of joy when things are going well. Now, if you were to be honest, how would you answer this or fill in the blank to this sentence right here. I would be more joyful right now if blank. Take a minute, examine your own heart, and fill in that blank. Maybe write it down or just make a mental note. Okay? I would be more joyful right now if blank. We're going to Put a pin in that, remember it, whether it's written down or it's just in your mind, and we'll come back to that later. But before we go any further, before we kind of jump into our text for the morning, let's pray, ask God to convict our hearts, to speak to us, to do what only we can. Father, thank you for giving us your word. And now, God, would you help us by your Holy Spirit to discern uh, what you are saying uh, in a way that we can not just hear it, but hear it and apply it into our lives. God, would you speak through me now, and would you take these words and apply it to each heart that's listening in a unique way? 
We love you. Amen. All right, so we're going to recap real quick um, where we've been, uh, just so that we can get up to speed with what's happening this morning. Uh, since we've jumped back into Luke, we've kind of remembered that Jesus is now on his way to Jerusalem. So he's making his way to Jerusalem, and on the way, uh, a few weeks back, we remember that he tried to stop in this region of Samaria and was not welcome there. Uh, there's a bit of racial tension going on, so he ends up moving and going back into Jewish territory as he makes his way down to Jerusalem. And somewhere along the way, uh, as he's making his way and they're traveling through Jewish territories again, um, Jesus sets apart 72 of his disciples that are following him in that moment and says, I'm going to send you out two by two into all the villages that I'm about to go to on my way to Jerusalem. And I want, I'm going to give you my power and my authority to heal, to cast out demons, and to kind of prime the way for where I'm going. Like, I want people to know before I get there that, hey, this is the coming kingdom. This is what's happening. So he sends them out two by two into these regions. And uh, what Tim shared with us last week was that as he sent them out, he sent them out with some expectations. And I'm going to paraphrase here based on what Tim taught last week because I'm not going to read the whole passage. But he told them to, as you go out, expect a harvest. Remember he said the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few, so I'm sending you out into this harvest. He said he also wanted them to ex expect opposition. He said, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so you should expect some opposition on the way. He also was teaching them that they should expect for me to provide abundantly for you. Don't take any uh, provisions with you, okay? So I'm going to provide for you. Stay in the same home. Expect me to provide. And then he also said to expect a response that uh, he said, as you go out sharing this message, this good news, that the ones who hear you are actually hearing me and the ones who reject you are actually rejecting me. So people aren't going to be on the fence here. They're going to go one way or the other. They're going to receive it or they're not going to receive it. So that's what they've sent out, that Jesus sent them out to go do. Okay? So this is where we pick up in the story this week. Uh, we're going to pick back up as the 72 return from their missionary journey, you could call it. Um, and we're going to see what happens. So we'll pick up in verse 17. So Luke tells us that the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Okay, so there's a couple questions that need to be answered um, that the text doesn't tell us. It seems like Jesus would have set a time and place for them to come back to. We don't know how long they were actually gone on this journey. The text doesn't tell us that. So we have to assume here that Jesus gave them a time and place to come back to, however long they were gone, this day, this time, come back here and we'll recap over what's happened. So this is kind of where we're at now. They're back. It says the 72 have returned. We're assuming to a specific time and place that Jesus has said. So they're in one place, and they're all coming from different villages. Remember, they two by two went to different villages. So they all would have journeyed back to wherever this set place was uh, so that they could recap their journey. Now, you can just kind of imagine, right? 
They've been sent out to do all these miraculous things and to see all these things happen with the power and the authority of Jesus. Imagine the stories that they would have had on the way back, right? Like, think about when, if you've gone to, like, summer camp as a kid or you went to, like, a sports tournament, right? You, maybe it's far away from where you live. And then on your car ride back or on your journey back or bus ride back, everyone's there and they're kind of, like, buzzing, like, oh, Remember that time that so-and-so did a cannonball in the lake and it was crazy? Or, like, remember that goal that this person scored? Oh, what a cool moment. Like, what's happening here is, like, that times four billion. Like, remember that time that that person's, like, leg got healed? Or remember that time that, like, the demons just fled as soon as we said Jesus has authority over you? Like, imagine the stories that were being shared. But there's a consensus here when they get back that... Um, it, all, we, all we hear is that this, the one thing that's being said, the one voice that comes out of all of this is, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. That's like the one thing unanimously that everyone was excited about, that even demons are subject to us in your name. And it's surely not the only thing that happened, but this is like the main thing that they wanted to tell Jesus. Like it's what they're leading with, right? Jesus, did you know? That this is happening? Now, how does Jesus respond to them? He responds with uh, maybe an unlikely response. He, uh, he uses this really interesting word picture. Uh, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. That's not exactly what you would expect, right? They're pumped. We just saw all this stuff. I and mean, Jesus is like, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Okay? It's not entirely clear exactly what Jesus is talking about here. Like, from all the commentaries that read, I've read on this and all the history that I've looked at, there's no general consensus exactly what Jesus is talking about. He could, here's a couple things he could be talking about. He could be talking about a physical moment in the past because Jesus would have been witness to Satan physically falling as an angel from heaven. Could be talking about that. He also could be talking about as the 72 went out, and were given authority over demons, Jesus seeing the power of Satan being stripped back as the demons are being cast out, as people are being healed, as the power of darkness is being pushed back. He could be talking about that. But what he is saying, no matter through it all, what he's trying to get across is that he has decisive victory over the enemy. Like when he says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven, he's declaring, remember, I have seen it all. I have victory over the powers of darkness. I'm actually reminded of a few other passages of Scripture that talk about this same idea. Uh, the Gospel of John. John begins his Gospel by saying this. The light, Jesus, he describes Jesus as the light. He says, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus' victory over the darkness. And then Paul, in his letter to Colossians, says this about Jesus' victory over the enemy. He says, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. He's talking about Jesus' ultimate resurrection, defeating sin and death, showing that he had power and authority over them. So this is what Jesus is getting across as he responds to them. He's like, I know you're excited, but remember, the authority that I gave you, I have the authority over everything. So don't be too surprised here. And Jesus goes on to tell them, Behold, 
I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. So Jesus just is talking about his authority over darkness and his victory, and now he's saying, I gave you that authority, and I sent you out with that victory so that nothing could hurt you along the way. And I imagine there was some sense of people being in physical danger from serpents or scorpions. Remember, they're staying in... Um, they're staying in uh, first century uh, Israel, and they would have been, been on the roads and things like that, open and susceptible to many dangers, but nothing hurt them on the way. Because Jesus sent them on a specific mission at a specific time and said, I'm going to protect you. But from this, you have to ask the question, does this mean that every follower of Jesus will never experience physical suffering or pain? Because Jesus is telling this crowd, I sent you out with my authority, and that's why nothing hurt you. But wait, when we're saved, don't we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us? Don't we have Jesus on our side? So why do we still experience physical pain and suffering? What I don't think we can pull out of this text is that, um, that every follower of Jesus will never experience suffering. Okay, I don't think you have to look farther than the story of Jesus himself to know that that's not true. Jesus himself went straight into areas where he knew he would experience suffering and pain. I mean, he was crucified. You don't have to go farther than the book of Acts to see that his followers will experience incredible suffering and hardships in this world, right? You think about Stephen being stoned, okay, for the sake of the name of Jesus. So I don't think Jesus is teaching that suffering will never come upon any person who follows me. But what I do think you can pull from this text is that sometimes when God is calling specific people to a specific mission to get something done at a specific time, then nothing will stand in the way of God's providence in that moment. When he decides this is going to happen, it's going to happen no matter what. And he said, I'm sending you out into these villages in this situation and there was nothing that was going to stand in the way of that because he said, this is what I'm sending you out to do right now. And it was a specific calling from the mouth of Jesus where he said, nothing is going to hurt you along the way. So nothing did. This topic of suffering is, honestly, guys, it's a whole other message. It's probably a whole other series, right? I, I can't go into the whole thing right now. And I don't think it's the point of this message, but I'll just leave you with this. I would caution against following any theological or any, any theology that doesn't have room for suffering, because I don't think the scriptures teach that at all. And I'll just kind of leave that at that for now. But let's pick back with the, uh, what uh, Jesus is talking to these 72 again. So he has just said, I sent you out with my authority, and yes, you cast out demons, and they were subject to you. And then verse 20, he says, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. It's as if Jesus is essentially saying this to this crowd of 72. He's essentially saying, listen, I'm glad you're excited. I've been talking about the kingdom and I've been showing you that I have power and authority over the enemy in darkness. And now you're experiencing it for yourselves. But don't let that be the foundation of your joy. These miracles, the, the things that are happening. Because remember, you yourselves 
We're lost and without hope in this world. You are dead in your sin, spiritually blind, and I've given you new life. I've sent you out with my power and my authority. I've given you a life that's eternal. You've been made a son or a daughter of God. Let that be the foundation of your joy. He says your names are written in heaven. There's language throughout the Old Testament and the prophets, and then in Revelation as well, where you get this idea of like, um, God the Father having this book, and all of his children are written in this book, those who are called to eternal life. And he's saying, your names are written there. I know you by name. You're here. You're part of my family. Rejoice in that. Don't rejoice in the things that are happening. Don't rejoice in the circumstances that are going on, but rejoice in your identity as people who have been made a part of the family of God. Let that be the basis, the foundation of your joy. Remember the sentence that we asked to fill in the blank to earlier? Let's, let's circle back to that now, okay? I'm going to read that sentence again. I would be more joyful right now if blank. Think about what your answer to that was. I just want us to think about what does our, what's the bottom of our joy? What's the base of it, right? What is our happiness and our joy hinging on? I mean, for, I mean, gosh, for me, right? I moved here to be a part of this church plant. There is a temptation to think that if this room is not full, and if we're not seeing crazy things happen all the time, and if my neighbors aren't all coming to Jesus, then, then this is a failure. If there's no physical success of what we would deem success, then I don't have too much to be joyful for. Which would be totally wrong. Because I'm still a child of God, regardless of whatever happens. Our gospel community this week, we, we talked about this. We were talking about, like, we were talking about how it's so easy for us to get caught up in the ministry and to get caught up in what is either happening or not happening in our relationships as we're engaging with people and to get so discouraged, right? Oh, you know, I've been talking to this person for so long and, and it doesn't seem like there's any headway or like they're just so closed off to the message. I don't even know how to talk to them. And the tendency is to think that it's a big failure because that's not happening. But what Jesus is saying here, as he's got this crowd of people that just came back from the opposite of that, a spiritual high, where they actually saw just like amazing things happening, he says to them, don't, don't rejoice in that. Rejoice in the fact that you've been redeemed. There is a joy that is greater than any favorable circumstance or material possession could ever give us. Okay? And it's to be seen and known by our Creator, by God. With all of our sin, with all of our shameful things, and then to be seen and known and yet loved sacrificially and, and to be redeemed by this God. We've been made a part of His family by being united with Jesus. And I want, we're going we're to look at the next couple verses and they'll kind of 
highlight even more why our joy should be rooted in Jesus and not in our circumstances. So verse 21, Luke tells us this. In that same hour, he, Jesus, rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son. Jesus is talking about himself. No one knows me except the Father, fully. And no one knows who the Father is fully except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. There's a lot happening here in what Jesus is saying. But there's also something spectacular happening under the surface, and I don't know if you guys caught it. It doesn't initially jump out. You've got to mine for it a little bit, but what we're getting a glimpse of in these two verses that Jesus says is a relationship. We're seeing God existing in three persons at work in these verses. Look at the beginning of 21. It says, Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father. Now, I don't know about you guys, but since I became a Christian, um, in the circles that I've been in, there's kind of like this, like talking about the Trinity is kind of like taboo. Like that's like something that theologians discuss on their extracurricular time in between classes, right? Because it's just a little bit too lofty and it's hard to understand. And, um, and to be fair, this idea of God in three persons is hard to understand. Incredibly difficult. But it's as if, because we can't fully understand how it works, that we act as if it's not like vitally important to our faith. It's just like one of those extra things that I'll think about like after I've like, you know, thought about my redemption in Jesus. But here's the reality. We have no business talking about redemption in Jesus unless we want to acknowledge that the Trinity exists because Jesus himself is a person of the Trinity. So if we're not acknowledging that God exists in three persons, then we have no foundation for our faith. We have to acknowledge that God exists in three persons, okay? It's not just a theological construct, okay? This is a relationship. I love how... Uh, Mike Reeves, he's a seminary leader in England. He says this about the Trinity. He says, The Trinity is the governing center of all Christian beliefs, the truth that shapes and beautifies all others. The Trinity is the cockpit of all Christian thinking. It's kind of a cool way of putting it. And what I'm saying here, what he's saying, is the Trinity is not just a theological construct to like guide how we think about God, but it's a relational reality. It's not just a lofty idea. It's a reality of who God is, and it's a reality of what we're being invited into. So let me explain this a little bit more. Um, so as Christians, we believe that God exists as Father, Son, and Spirit. C.S. Lewis describes this relationship as a dance. And this was really helpful for me to understand. Okay? So for all of eternity, think back, like generally we kind of think that the story of the gospel starts at creation, 
like, even think about the times that you've told people about the story of the gospel. You probably start with God created, right? And then you talk about sin and what happens, but the gospel actually starts with just God. God exists. That's the beginning of the gospel. God exists in relationship with God. For all of eternity, we have God existing. What was happening? That's kind of a bleak thought sometimes for us, right? Because we can only think in, in, in uh, thoughts of like what we see, feel, and touch around us. And when we think that God exists by himself before everything, that kind of goes way beyond what we can even grasp, right? But the reality is that God has existed for all of eternity in relationship with God. And you see this in creation, right? That um, all three persons of the Trinity are represented. It says the Spirit was hovering over the waters. And Jesus is described as the Word. So this isn't like a new thing that's just coming about in creation. This is something that existed beforehand. And C.S. Lewis calls it a dance because... Of the three persons of the Trinity, you see this idea of mutually self-giving love. So it's not like we have the Father and the Spirit and the Son revolve around the Father. And it's not we have Jesus and the Father and the Spirit revolve around Jesus. It is this dance where Father, Son, Spirit are all pointing to each other because when we say God is love, okay, we see that idea in Scripture. God can only be loved because God exists in relationship with God. Because there has to be a relational aspect if we're going to say there's love involved. Okay? So, I love that C.S. Lewis describes the Trinity as a dance. There's no one at the center, but rather they're all pointing to each other. Okay? And you see this constantly over and over again, where Jesus is going and he's glorifying the Father. Okay? And then you also see Jesus praying like, Jesus, let them see the glory that, he, he's saying, Father, let them see the glory that you gave me for all of eternity. And this is all happening and being fueled by the Spirit because the Spirit is coming and he's awakening people's hearts to now glorify Jesus and to pray to the Father. So, you guys getting a sense for why thinking about God as three persons is so vital? Now let's go to the next level, right? This dance exists for all of eternity. When we believe in Jesus, this is what we're being brought into. Because when we believe in Jesus, we're saying that we're being united with Jesus. So what's happening here is we're being brought into a love that had no beginning. Eternal love is what we're now being brought into. Because it had no beginning, right? Father, Son, Spirit exists for all of eternity. And now we're united to the Son. We're brought into this love. We're caught up in the love of God that will also have no end. Hmm. Jesus is rejoicing in these verses where he says, I'm going to go back here, where he says, I'm rejoicing that you're revealing these truths to the humble. He says, little children. People that are humbling themselves and realizing and recognizing and giving eyes to see who I am are being brought into this eternal relationship. And now they are now going to know who you are fully because Jesus says only the Son can truly know who the Father is. 
And only the Father can truly know who the Son is. So we can only truly know who God is if we are united to the Son. But now we have been, through His grace, in our faith in Jesus, united to Him. And now we have full access to who God is. Guys, that's something to rejoice over. The God of the universe, of the cosmos, the one who has eternally existed, we now are united to. That is something worth rejoicing over. So when Jesus is saying, don't rejoice over the things that happen, over the circumstances, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven, this is the sense of why he's saying, that is piddly compared to what you have in your new identity. You've been made a part of this eternal family. Rejoice in that above anything else. And I'm going to turn this on our heads, right? Whatever you answered to that fill-in-the-blank, I'm not saying it's not important. If you could fill in that blank, I would be more joyful if blank happened. It's still worth pursuing those things. It's like, it's not wrong to be happy over the things that happen that are favorable. Okay? But don't let that be the bottom of your joy. Don't be destroyed if that thing doesn't happen. And don't let it be the highest high if you were to have that thing. Because the reality is, regardless if it happens or it doesn't, if you believe in Jesus, no one can take away what you have. So in the midst of any circumstance, you've got this unwavering truth that you've been eternally, moving eternity forward, you've been united to the eternal Son and brought into this family. So God, I've been praying all week, okay, that we would leave this morning with a greater sense of joy in who we are and how we've been made new. Because I think that's what Jesus is rejoicing over, that people are being made new, and he's telling us, find your joy in that. So that's my prayer for us this morning, that we would take this to heart. Let's take Jesus at his word and fight to have our fullest and richest joy, the bottom of our joy, be not based on our circumstances, but to be based in our identity and our union with Jesus. Let's pray. Father, would you do just that? Would you give us a greater sense of how deep your love is for us, that you would bring us into this relationship that you've had, that's existed for all of eternity, and uniting us to your eternal Son, and filling us with your eternal Spirit, that we can be your sons or daughters. God, would you, would you make that the bottom of our joy? Would you make that the joy that makes all other joys seem so minor? And would you make that the joy that makes even the worst circumstance not crush us because we know that this is still true? God, ultimately, we know that you can only do this in our hearts, so that's why we ask you. So would you do that?
Amen.